So how are you all doing? It's a lot, isn't it, to come out of the silence and have those creative and engaging conversations. And sometimes we want more and other times it's like, give me the peace and quiet back. Silence. It's not that bad after all, right? One of the things I think is amazing about the Buddha's teachings is his combination of insight and practice into both our personal experience and the impersonal experience. Another way of framing this is to talk about the relative, the absolute, or the two truths, um, the relative and the transcendent. The personal is our personal, especially inner experience, our story, our conditioning, our memories, our habits, and the way we can use mindfulness to bring deeper and deeper understanding to that, to the way our inner experience unfolds. And then the impersonal is understanding the nature of reality, the universal truths, the the transcendent, the things that don't change. And what's important about these two truths is that they don't deny or negate each other and that understanding or bringing wisdom to both is really important for our practice and our development, and that there's a freedom that can be found through our exploration of both of them, but both are necessary. I talked the other night about right mindfulness, how mindfulness, when it's truly understood in practice, leads to wisdom. It, in and of itself can be a manifestation of wisdom. The very functioning of mindfulness can actually be um, Satipanya, mindfulness wisdom, that the clear seeing engages us in a skillful way with our experience, helps us to let go or to cultivate wholesome qualities. And I mentioned that it's a part of the Eightfold Path. It's one of the factors of the Eightfold Path, which is itself um, the fourth noble truth. I want to talk tonight um, a little bit about some other factors uh, in this Eightfold Path. The way we usually talk about the Eightfold Path in shorthand is Sila Samadhi Panya, called the Three Baskets. Sila is ethical conduct, Samadhi is meditative development, and Panya is wisdom. Right mindfulness falls in the meditation basket, the Samadhi section. I want to talk tonight about the Panya section the wisdom section, to deepen the kind of wisdom, to talk about the kind of wisdom that can deepen as we practice, as we practice right mindfulness and that wisdom is developed. What is it that we see? What is it that we develop? So what did the Buddha mean by wisdom or right wisdom? He, there's two factors in this section. And the first one is right view or understanding. And that points to the impersonal truths that I've already mentioned. And the second one is right intention or right thought. And that's very much in the realm of our personal or relational experience. So these first two factors of the wisdom section, or the two factors of the wisdom section, embody this personal and impersonal nature of the insights that we can have or the practices that we can do. Right understanding or right view 
helps us to open to or points to the truth of things, the way things are. But what's interesting is in, there's a way you can see the Eightfold Path as being somewhat sequential. So even though it, you, know, you can go in and out and there's lots of feedback loops, but there's a basic sequential nature to it. And to see that right wisdom, understanding the way things are, leads to right thought or right intention, which are these beautiful qualities of the heart that wisdom naturally expresses itself in these factors of renunciation, uh, goodwill, and non-harming. So that's what's so powerful about the Buddha's teaching is how he's constantly weaving these two together and that they're supporting each other. And so we deepen in wisdom, we deepen in understanding, and then its expression are these beautiful qualities of the heart, of renunciation, goodwill, which expresses itself as metta, and non-harming, which also expresses itself as compassion. So the first factor is that of right view. Pali is samma ditti, and I use this word samma in talking about mindfulness, samma sati. Uh, again, to say samma means usually translated as right, but it doesn't mean right as in right or wrong. It's really more right as in perfected or good or wholesome or beneficial. Another um, way we use it is wise. So it's a, it's a wise response or a wise understanding. And it's traditionally talked about as being, as I said, understanding the nature of things, the, the nature of the universal nature of experience. And classically, it's, it's, it's about understanding the three characteristics, the Four Noble Truths, karma, dependent origination, and things like that. The, the Buddha's teachings that really explain the universal nature of experience. Guy talked a lot about the three characteristics last night, so I want to focus just a little bit on the Four Noble Truths, which is this other essential wisdom teaching of the Buddha. And one of the essential components of right view or wise understanding. Now, the Four Noble Truths, many of you are probably familiar with it, this um, list of, of teachings that um, uh, really, for some, uh, they can often be seen to embody with, uh, Buddhism. If you think about Buddhism, you think about the Four Noble Truths. They're so centrally aligned, and it, it was the first teaching that the Buddha gave when he finally decided to teach. This is what he spoke about, the Four Noble Truths. But it's really important to remember that the Four Noble Truths aren't just a list to memorize that good Buddhists know the Four Noble Truths. They're like card-carrying Buddhists. You've got them in your pocket. Oh, yeah, Four Noble Truths. Got that, know that, understand that, memorize that. The Four Noble Truths are practices. They're actually an invitation to us to have a skillful relationship or understanding of our experience. And in them is the way to freedom. It points to where we get caught, and clearly points to how we find freedom. And so they're practices that we can actually include in our mindfulness practice, in our daily practice, in our retreat practice. The first noble truth is usually um, defined as something like the noble truth of suffering. Dukkha is the word that's used. Dukkha, usually translated as suffering. 
it does not say life is suffering or everything is suffering. I often hear it badly translated as that, and it's very clear. It just says there is suffering. That the nature of conditioned things is for them to be, for there to be suffering because of everything I spoke about last night, their inherent unreliability or impermanence or inconstancy. This word suffering sounds kind of daunting. I mean, it doesn't sound much fun, does it? Suffering. Who wants to talk about suffering? But it really represents a wide range of experiences from the most extreme forms of pain and grief and loss, lamentation, despair, to the subtlest sense of unsatisfactoriness, of not quite rightness. So we often use other words like um, unsatisfactory or unreliable or imperfection. Some some teachers like stress or anguish to describe it. But it's basically that sense of things not being quite right. I've been told that one of the images used to describe suffering in the text is it's like a cart with one wheel that's slightly out of round. And so every time it goes around, there's that little bit of lurching, that little bit of bumpiness in the ride. This is what's pointing to in this teaching, this truth. And it's just letting us understand really clearly that life is unpredictable. Life is challenging. Life is stressful. And the reason that's helpful is... So we, if we understand that, we don't feel a victim or that something's gone wrong. We haven't figured it out. If we're suffering, this is just the nature of things. Life is really challenging. I mean, just here on retreat, how challenging has it been for you? Did you have the retreat you expected or wanted? You know, we don't control things. We struggle and we have difficulty. This is the nature of experience. And each of these truths has a, a, a practice that's associated with it. So that the truth is the statement of the truth. So for the first one, it is the noble truth of suffering. There is suffering in life, in any being's life. The practice is to understand it, to understand it. And this means actually to turn towards it. And this is, again, one of the radical things that the Buddha does. Is say, he says, don't run as fast as you can from suffering. Don't strategize or, you know, try to live in that country called denial. Um, or what is it? What is it? Denial is not just a river in Egypt. Um, to actually turn towards suffering. To understand its nature, its quality. So we're not so caught in it, not so gripped by it. And so it's really a practice of a lot of surrender. A lot of opening to the truth of things. And not resisting this experience of suffering when it happens, because that just adds more suffering. Another Buddhist teaching is called the two darts or the two arrows, where the first arrow is whatever the impact of an experience is, literally physical impact, wounds, illness, injury, but it could be emotional impact. Um, And that will happen. That will happen to all of us. Old age sickness, death, the guy spoke about last night, that will happen. The second arrow is that it shouldn't be happening. The woe is me. The why is it happening to me? It shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't have to X, Y, and Z. They shouldn't do that. Or they should do that, and they didn't do it. That's the second arrow. 
As we say, pain is inevitable. Suffering, in this sense, is optional. Suffering is this internal responsive resistance to this truth of suffering. And so we really get to see we have more capacity or more possibilities for how we respond to suffering than we initially give ourselves credit for. And that if we can turn to it with mindfulness, it's still painful, it's still suffering. But it's not the anguish that we can create for ourselves when we resist, when we deny the way things are, when we feel, again, a victim or it's bad or wrong, it shouldn't be happening. It is happening. And it also doesn't mean, you know, that we wallow in misery. The Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. And this turning towards suffering is to understand its nature so we can actually find an end to suffering. And that's what the rest of the the Noble Truth goes on to point. But it begins with this place of can we understand suffering, understand its nature, understand how it gets created, and then understand how it's released. So how it gets created is the second noble truth. The Buddha said the cause of suffering is tanha. Usually gets translated as desire or craving, but the literal meaning is thirst, and not in the sense of neutral thirst, you know, I'm thirsty, I need a a sip of water, but an unquenchable thirst that's never satisfied. That's the meaning of tanha. So in this, talking about this, it's not talking about, you know, a lot of the desires we have for more well-being or to practice metta, you know, coming on this retreat, you had to have some wanting or desire to practice. They're all wholesome kinds of desires. It's talking about that kind of desire that's this driven quality that has this agitated nature to it, even at a very subtle level that thinks that we need whatever it is to be fulfilled or to be happy. And desire is a, and what's interesting about this teaching is it includes aversion because aversion is just not wanting something to happen. These are really just two sides of the same coin, whether we're clinging to something or pushing something away. It's the same kind of energy. So even as I talk about desire, we can include all the forms of aversion um, that Guy spoke about the other night. But desire is um, hard sometimes to recognize as suffering because it's so beguiling. We're so lost in the object or the experience that we want that we don't notice what's actually happening in our inner experience. And we're so... We so believe that getting that object, getting that experience, that relationship, that person, that job, that promotion, that grant will bring us happiness. We don't pay attention to what we're actually experiencing. And so we imbue the object with all of these amazing qualities. I think the Tibetans say we put feathers on it. It's like make it the thing that's going to bring us happiness. And that's where we are in delusion about not seeing the three characteristics, that whatever it is, it's impermanent and constant, and there's nothing solid there. Guy spoke about last night. But we keep forgetting that. We think, oh, it's just because I didn't get the right object. I didn't try hard enough. I didn't find the right person or get the right grant or find the right pen or whatever it is. You know, and this time it's going to do it for me. You know, we don't think this consciously, but something is driving us to this wanting. 
and we forget the limitations. We forget our previous frustrations in this very same area. You know, things like vacations. We plan, oh, wouldn't it be great to go on vacation, to go to Italy or somewhere you've really wanted to go. And it just seems wonderful, glorious. And someone comes back from Italy and they say, oh, yes, the great food and the art and the people, and it's wonderful. And they don't talk about the planes that were late and the hotels that were overbooked and the, you know, the train that you missed and the time you got lost and could, you were tired and hungry. You forget all that because you just are into where's the pleasure, what's the appealing thing about it. We forget. We forget. We have this kind of amnesia about experience. And so we always think it's out there somewhere and we just have to hold on hard enough and it'll do it for us. I heard a great story about the force of of desire and the suffering nature of it. Just a a little example, this past retreat I just taught in February, a student on the retreat who was having a good retreat, a great retreat. She had a lot of spaciousness, a lot of equanimity. It was a month-long retreat. She'd done a lot of practice, really good person. And then she noticed one day she'd lost the gold earring that she'd worn that day. And it wasn't just any earring, it had sentimental value because her husband had given it to her and she'd brought it to the retreat particularly because of that to remind her of her husband. She lost this earring. She was devastated. So all of this spaciousness and equanimity, gone, out the window. It's like, how can I find, you know, how can I go back and tell him I lost it? I have to find it, you know, just this agitation from losing this object she was attached to. So she, you know, it was late at night, I think, when she found she'd lost it. So nothing she could do. She just said, you know, when it gets light, I'll go and retrace my steps and see if I can find it. Well, the amazing thing is she found it. You know, in a little crack, she just happened to look down, and there it was. So what do you think she felt, right? Joy, delight, oh, relief, I found it. And then the very next moment, fear. I could lose it again. I lost it once. I could lose it again. And it was, she was, you know, she, that by then she had to step back and laugh a little because, you know, you just see how we careen through these emotional responses to experience. I have it. I don't have it. I lost it. I got it back, but I could lose it again. That's the suffering of desire, of craving, of just seeing how we, we get obsessed we get obsessed by these objects and experiences. And again, in not talking about this, I'm not talking about or trying to imply that we shouldn't enjoy the things of life, a beautiful sunset, you know, friendship, all the things that as lay people we can enjoy. But really to start to see that actually what's going on when we're craving something and when it ends, the happiness we feel, is not so much about getting the object. It's actually the craving momentarily subsiding. What practice teaches us is to shift our attention from the object to our experience. And as we stay in touch with that, we actually discover, can discover a sense of well-being that's not so related to whether we have the object or not. And we start to see that it's not about getting the object. It's not having that in an unquenchable thirst or craving that keeps driving us on to look for the next hit, the next high, the next thing. So as we start to pay attention to our own inner experience, wisdom naturally arises. We see that craving causes suffering. 
this kind of craving. We see it for ourselves, and so we just naturally let go. We don't have to be told you should let go. We see it. And so we open to the third noble truth, which is there is an end to craving. There is an end to this sense of being driven, of, of un, in unsatisfactoriness, of, of um, wanting. And the third noble truth is Nibbana, that it is possible to come to an end of suffering, that true and deep and profound happiness is possible. And we can think of enlightenment and the, you know, what ha- the Buddha and all of the enlightened sages of the ages, but it's also available to us, just as Guy spoke about last night so beautifully, that space within which the silence, the silence within which the sounds happen, the space within which our experience happens. The more we tune into that, the more that's our reference point, the less we're driven by these superficial or painful urges and wanting that causes us suffering. So it naturally develops, this inner wisdom, this inner knowing. These all feed and work on each other. So we start to see when we're not in contention with the way things are, the mind has more ease, more space. So this wisdom just keeps reinforcing itself. We just keep bringing that understanding more and more to the forefront. And that leads to the fourth noble truth, which is there's a path to practice. That's the Eightfold Path. And what's interesting is how these all intersect. So I'm going, instead of into the whole Eightfold Path, this, what, this wisdom, wise understanding, leading to wise intention. So just taking the first two factors. So this second factor is Sama Sankapa, wise intention or wise thought. An intention has two meanings. I'll talk a little bit about both of them. The first is, um, the Pali word is actually chetna, and that's the intention behind any action. Intention that needs to be there for us to move into action. And it's said that every, uh, every conditioned action has intention behind it. So even blinking an eye or reaching a hand or thinking a thought has intention behind it. What we're talking about in this realm, though, is volitional action. It's action that arises out of some kind of choice. So classic example, if you're walking along and you, and, and it, this is all related to karma. Karma, the definition of karma, again, another whole teaching, don't have time to go into, but the definition of karma is volitional action, action that's done out of some will, will or um, intention. If you're walking along and you don't see an insect or an ant and you step on it, you might have harmed a living being, but it wasn't your intention to do it. But if you see some insect you don't like and you, you know, kill it, that's intentional um, action, and that does have a karmic um, fruit. But again, I don't want to go into that so much tonight. The Tibetans say that so that's the first definition of intention. The second definition is this path factor, which I mentioned briefly at the beginning, of wise thought or wise intention. That's the intention towards renunciation, um, goodwill, and harmlessness. I'll speak a little bit about the first kind of intention, that one of, of motivation, because it's so important for us as practitioners. The Tibetans actually say that everything rests on the tip of intention. All of our practice, all of our movement through life, 
comes out of intention. And so it's important for us to clarify what intentions we're acting out of. Often, especially towards the end of the retreat, a number of people will ask ask questions like, I want to do more of X in my daily life. Practice metta, have a daily sitting, do more study, do more retreat. How do I do that? And most of the time people are looking for, well, you just do X, Y, and Z and it'll all be taken care of. Well, you probably know it's not that easy. That you won't do any of these things unless you clarify and really establish a clear intention, a why you should do them. So around a daily sitting practice, unless you have an understanding of why it would be beneficial for you and that you have an aspiration to experiencing that benefit, it's unlikely that it would happen. So nothing happens without intention. And what we start to see through mindfulness is we're acting out of intention all the time. We're just not aware of it most of the time. We're not aware of the intentions we're acting out of there they're subconscious or even unconscious. And so our practice is about to elevate those intentions. And again, not all of them, you know, every blink of an eye or, you know, subtle movements like that, but the ones that really shape our lives, let's be clear about what our intentions or aspirations are so that we can know them. We can actually have a wise choice. As my friend Sylvia Borstein says, before she undertakes anything, any practice, any activity, it's to what end? What am I cultivating? What's my purpose in this? So we actually have this engagement with experience. We're not just acting out of habit, acting or doing things because other people are doing them, because it's the latest fad. But we're really using our practice, our mindfulness, to get connected to what's important to us. So mindfulness is a real clear uh, key um, thing in getting to understand our intention. I spoke about wise mindfulness creating that choice point. A big thing of what we can see in that choice point is what is our intention in this moment, in this action, in speaking, in, in moving forward, in you know, doing whatever we do. So really to recognize that. So clarifying intention, really helpful for us, really important. I I know for myself, when I first was exposed to the Dhamma, I left Australia when I was in my mid-twenties, went to India, didn't know much of anything. I mean, you know, it's always hard to remember how naive we were about things, but just landed in India and gradually got interested in Buddhism and went to do my first retreat with uh, S.N. Goenka, who's an amazing and powerful Vipassana teacher who does a lot of uh, teaching in India. And hearing the Dharma for the first time is just like a light went off. And many of you may have had that experience of just knowing someone's finally speaking the truth. And it was talking about suffering, but it was also saying that there's a way not to cause as much suffering to myself, but particularly I was motivated to not cause as much suffering in my relationships. Do you mean I can can actually you know, bring some clarity and wisdom to this mess I make of my life and my relationships. It was a revelation to me that you could actually be more in touch with your feelings and connected and have compassion and empathy. 
So I was hooked from that first retreat. And I remember, you know, speaking just as you all did today and will do tomorrow to fellow practitioners. You know, it's my first retreat. I was like so excited and speaking to someone who'd done a number of retreats. And she just said, oh, yes, you know, it's so valuable. I try to do at least one or maybe two retreats a year. And I still remember my hubris. I thought, one or two, you know, how... um, Un- insincere can you be, you know, one or two, you know, I'm one a month, I think is, you know, you know, maybe I'll become a nun or I'll just, you know, dive in. And of course, you know, then life happened and, and, you know, I still definitely stayed connected, but I just saw how challenging it is, even in that, you know, being in India, um, where I didn't have many responsibilities to find the time and the location and the finances to get a retreat together. So was humbled about that. But just from that point on, the major decisions of my life were, how can I stay connected to the Dhamma? How can I get closer to the Dhamma, to teachers, to teachings, to fellow practitioners? And it just shaped my life. And I was lucky, you know, I was 25, 26. All I had was a backpack. I could make those choices. And when I went, finally, I was about a year and a half in Asia, did a lot of, uh, as much practice as I could do, but a lot of other stuff as well. And then finally went to Europe to travel. I was wanting to meet some friends. My sister was there, but I didn't connect with them. They'd all moved on. So I was just kind of wandering around. And I'd heard of um, one of my teachers, Christopher Titmus and Christina Feldman, had a retreat center in um, in Wiltshire at the time. And I really wanted to go do another retreat and connect with the Dharma in England. So I wrote to them and said, I really want to come on a retreat. There wasn't the internet. This is back in the 80s. You know, it didn't, you know, it was like, when is a retreat? And I didn't have an address. A poster restaurant was where I got my mail. So the next time I checked the poster restaurant, I got this letter and they said, oh, you're lucky. We have a retreat starting this weekend. Please come this space. I'm like, great. So, you know, pack up my stuff, leave. I think I was staying in one of these little cheap divey hotels in a dorm room kind of thing and make this long trek. It was quite a long trek to get down to this retreat center, you know, train and then bus. And then I literally had to walk across fields to get there. I wasn't quite sure where I was going, but it was a long trek to get there. And I finally find the the house. It's on the edge of this little village. And I walk in the driveway. There's people milling around and someone looks up and sees me and says, oh, you, have you come for the retreat? And I'm kind of, yes, you know. <laughs> you know hope. He goes, oh, you, you better go inside. I don't know what, what's, you know, they know about me. You know, I didn't think my <laughs> reputation was that bad preceding me to, in this retreat center. But I walk inside and I could tell something's wrong. And what they tell me is that letter was a week old. And the retreat had actually started the previous weekend, and it was finishing that day, and everyone was leaving. And not only was everyone leaving, and it wasn't a place as big as this, it was, a very, it was just a house, a, a large house, but not only was all, were all the people leaving and no retreat, the managers were leaving because they were in between kind of shifts, new managers were coming, and they weren't arriving for another 10 days. So they were closing the whole place down, and everyone was leaving. I was devastated. You know, I didn't have much money. I was really frugal in those days. And I'd traveled all this way. I didn't have any, it was in the middle of nowhere. It's getting late afternoon, you know, towards evening. What was I going to do? I, I was just, I mean, heartbroken. It was, you know, something just right there, so tangible. And it was like, no, you can't, you can't have it. You can't be here. You can't stay. 
but they let me come in, have a cup of tea, you know, take, take your pack off, sit down, and I'm just sort of moping around, and they're doing their things, packing up the house and getting busy, you know, ready to go. I'm kind of, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And after some time, they, came, they called me into the kitchen and said, you know, we've thought about it. You seem kind of okay. They didn't know me from Adam. You know, I said I'd sat with Christopher in, in India. Um, we've decided that we're all going to leave, but you can stay. You can, ha- you can stay in this house until the next people come and kind of keep the fires going, keep the, you know, it was cold. It was a winter, I forget what, what time of year it was, but it was quite cold. Take care of things. So instead of having nowhere to stay, I got sort of given the keys to the mansion. And I got to do my own, you know, 10-day retreat on my own. I'd been living in these, you know, divey hotel rooms in India, you know, the cheapest I could find, and in Europe, you know, staying in youth hostels, and it's like, ah. So it just, it was one of those experiences, you know, just like life, you know, it's right in front of you, you want it, it gets taken away, you you get it again. But that connection, being able to stay that week, so people got to kind of know me, and then the new people came, and I could stay for a few days, I said, can I stay, can I stay? And they said, no, no, you know, you do have to leave eventually. So I did have to leave, but I made those connections that really served me, and I did end up coming back to live and work to manage that retreat center was where I met Guy. And we went on from there sometime later to start a meditation community. We did that for a couple of years. Then we lived in England for a few years and then moved to California. The first thing we did was go and volunteer at Spirit Rock, which wasn't anything back then. It was They hadn't, they'd barely bought the land. And from that, my whole life has kind of unfolded from that first retreat and just that kind of intentionality about staying close to the Dhamma. Uh, it's obviously for me the best thing that I've ever done. So, it, And it all came out of having that intention. What would help me stay close to the Dhamma, to Dhamma teachings, to Dhamma people, to Dhamma places? When the Buddha talked about intention and, and, and the values, the Dhamma intentions we can create, what he said was this path factor of right or wise intention the intention to renunciation, to goodwill, or to harmlessness. So really, you know, the first intention I was just talking about was more of an inner uh, calibration, an inner understanding. This is how do we express that in the world. And again, as I said, how wisdom, when it develops, naturally expresses itself in these beautiful qualities, renunciation, goodwill, or metta, and harmlessness, and compassion. And it's an interesting kind of list, not one that you might necessarily think goes together. And it begins with renunciation. Again, like suffering, it's not great, you know, suffering and renunciation, sign me up. I'm, you know, I'm ready for more of that. But renunciation, when we truly understand it, is actually not a practice of giving up what we love or are attached to, but letting go of what no longer serves us. And really, again, using our wisdom to see that, to see what's true for us. And it really is the balancing of the cause of suffering, which is clinging or holding on. Renunciation is the expression, oh, I don't need to hold on so tight. I can let go of this. I can actually trust that I'll have what I need. I don't need to be clinging and craving so much. So it's about developing a different relationship 
to our experience, both inner and outer, and coming more out of trust, not out of fear. It's not an avoidance. And it's really refining needs, not wants, as is often said. But important to remember in our practice, it's not just about giving up stuff. One of the most important things we can renounce are our views and opinions, because they're a huge source of suffering and separation. Again, could do a whole talk about views and opinions and how limiting they can be. Not again that we don't use our minds to be creative, but this clinging and holding on, this the, the way, you know, the political discourse, not just in this country, of course, but virtually every country I see, is just divided by people clinging and holding on to views and opinions. So renunciation works in the field of our ideas and our thoughts as well. But when we hear this word, we usually think of it as some kind of denial, you know, that I have to give up what I love, I'm going to be, you know, suffering because of this, this is really hard, this is difficult. Um, And so we can understand why it has limited appeal. Why would I sign up for that? I saw this cartoon a little while ago, uh, you know, Hagar the Horrible, the Viking who's always off, you know, chasing after treasure and everything. This is a slightly different one, so it caught my attention. In the first frame, Hagar is climbing up a steep mountain, obviously on some kind of quest. In the second frame, there's this very wise-looking man with a long white beard sitting at the top of the mountain. And Hagar says to him, Oh, great sage, please teach me the secret of happiness. And in the next phrase, frame, the, the sage is replying, Simplicity, self-restraint, and renunciation. So this is what the sage says is the secret to happiness. Simplicity, self-restraint, renunciation. He's on the right track. And in the fourth frame, you see Hagar pausing and saying, is there anyone else up there I can speak to? <laughs> we don't want to hear this. You know, that, that actually being more simple, giving up things is the way to happiness. We're so convinced that it's about getting more stuff. And so our practice really is to reflect on what true happiness is. It's one of the reasons why I think the metta practice is so helpful for us, because as we say, may I be happy, we get to inquire, what is happiness? What does happiness mean for me, mean for you, mean for all beings? Not just this superficial sense of happiness, but really, what's true happiness? And what can we do without? What can we give up? At the moment, um, talk, you know, renunciation is, as a practitioner is something we work with a lot, and you know, I'm still always exploring it, because I, as, as a lot, like a lot of you, ha- have a lot of choices in my life. You know, I'm relatively blessed in my life, and out of that, a lot of choices come. And so what's a wise relationship to the possibilities in my life? How do I... You know, use resources wisely, use my, my um, financial resources wisely, just have a sense of that. And also as a practitioner, what's wise in that way? What kind of lifestyle, you know, what kind of clothes, just all of the things that we might uh, be involved with. And one of the things that, that this comes up for me around at the moment is my car. I got my very first new car in 1997. I'd never had a new car before. And in 1997, it was pretty hot. 
you know, and I was very excited by getting this new car, you know, black and shiny. It was a Toyota RAV4, so it had I, a lot of stuff, a lot of space to hold my stuff around in. Um, but I very, you know, it very just soon became the car. You know, it's not a new car anymore. And then I noticed the things that were wrong with it. It didn't have a good cup holder, and it only had a tape deck. So I lived with that for a long time, you know, only a tape deck, you know, and as, you know, now even CDs are kind of old hand, but at that, that point it's like, I can't even play a CD in my car. So a few years ago I put in a CD player, it's right, okay, now this car has everything. Well, it still doesn't have a good cup holder. And, you know, all of my friends are driving newer cars than I am, and shouldn't I really get a Prius? Isn't that the wise use of resources? Well, my car, which is, what, 15 years old, I've only driven 55,000 miles. I don't drive very much. How many miles would I have to drive to pay off a Prius? So I, you know, be kind of, every now and then these thought, you know, I'd see a Prius like, oh, yeah, and they've got all these cool gadgets now, you know, the rear vision backing up thing and <laughs> GPS, and it's like, my car's got nothing, you know, it's just the bare bones. And so it's really been interesting to see how the desire would come up and be like, oh, yeah, a new car. I need a new car, don't I? I, I deserve a new car. I should have a new car. And then I'd look and I'd say, my car's fine. For the amount I drive for where I go, it's got a lot of dings, it's fine. And it would just subside. And then a day, a week, a month, but what about a new car, you know? <laughs> I've been going through this for about five years now, and I still, you know, I can't quite get that moment where I say, oh, I should, you know, get a new car, I should have a new car. As Joseph said, restraint allows us to see the impermanent nature of desire. I think that's such a good teaching. If we don't, we don't have to act on every urge we have, and then we see it's conditioned, it's impermanent. It'll go away. It doesn't last either. And Suzuki Roshi said, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but accepting that they go away. So it's not that we're throwing everything away. We're just seeing, oh, it goes. How can I have a wise relationship to that. This is the practice of renunciation. The second of these beautiful factors is that of goodwill. And its expression is metta. Sharon spoke beautifully the other night about the power of metta and metta practice and the other Brahmaviharas. I just want to focus tonight when I talk about metta about the particular aspect of metta for self because I think it's, it's so important and that we can never actually do enough, for most of us anyway, metta for self, that it's so healing. And to really um, establish a foundation of caring for ourselves, accepting for ourselves, even loving ourselves, makes a huge shift in, our, of course, our inner experience, but then how we are in the world. And so what would that look like? What would that look like for us? What stories would we have to let go of? What ideas or habits or conditioned patterns would we have to let go of to actually feel that, to feel a true sense of acceptance, of kindness, of compassion towards ourselves? really towards ourselves. You know, the idea, I don't deserve it, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm not okay, this, this story that most of us um, tell about ourselves. 
And I just see in working with people and certainly knowing my own mind that the pain of shame and judgment, of lack of self-acceptance, of self-criticism, is really one of the huge wounds of our society. That so many people suffer from this. And it's actually often one of the greatest causes of our suffering because it plays out into all of these other ways. I've spoken to you, a number of you, about this because I just happened to, a day or so ago, got someone sent me a link for a TED talk by this woman, Brene Brown. And she has, is a, a, a therapist and her, for the last 10 or 15 years or so has done research on shame, guilt, unworthiness, and vulnerability. These are pretty potent things to be uh, investigating. And she, she says she's just seen how especially shame is the source of much broken behavior in our culture and that it's almost like an epidemic. And that because of shame, we close ourselves down. We don't let ourselves feel. We don't let ourselves be vulnerable. So we numb parts of ourselves. But as she said, we can't numb selectively. As we numb not to feel what's difficult or painful, inner or outer, we also numb the capacity to feel love, to feel joy. And she really points to the necessity of accepting ourselves and being willing to feel vulnerable. The vulnerability is the key, she says, and that if we're willing to feel vulnerable, we can move to the capacity to feel wholehearted. And that's the trajectory that she maps out is from being from recognizing the shame, being willing to acknowledge it, work with it, to feel vulnerable, we can then move to a sense of wholeheartedness. That's metta, isn't it? To bring our whole heart to our experience. I found it very helpful, very insightful. And it a lot came out of willing to be imperfect, that none of us are perfect, that that so many of us share this hidden secret of guilt or shame, and that the more we're willing to name it, to bring it into consciousness, the less we'll be driven by it, and we'll actually have more chance to come to a clearer and wiser relationship to ourselves. So this work of learning to love and accept ourselves is not something that's kind of a tangent to our spiritual practice, that, you know, I'm the wounded one that needs to figure this out, and then I can come back and meditate. This is central to actually have a foundation of care and love and acceptance allows us to do the deeper work that results in true freedom, true letting go. As Jack Engler, our friend, says, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. It means we have to have that sense of resilience, of trust in ourselves and our capacity to truly open to the teachings on impermanence and emptiness and not-self. So we have to do this work of exploring our inner life, our inner landscape, and really turning towards this voice that says we're not good enough. This critical voice, the reason that it, it, it persists is because it serves us in some way. Like any habit, it gets conditioned because there's some pleasure or satisfaction in perpetuating it. Now, as I say that you might think in judging, you know, and judging others, you think, yeah, you know, I can see a sense of superiority. It separates me. I get to feel better about myself. But judging ourselves negatively, what do we get out of that? But we wouldn't do it unless we got something out of it. 
And I encourage people when I work with them to explore what that is, because it's a kind of doorway into understanding that tendency. What's the hook in judging? What's the payoff? I mean, simple ones are just, we're just buying into the message that we've got from our family, from our friends, from society, from culture, that we're not okay. And we're kind of, oh yeah, you know, I believe that. We're not rippling the waters and saying, no, that's not true. Judging ourselves negatively, we hide behind it. I don't have to show up. I don't have to expose myself. It's my defense mechanism. There's many, many reasons why we need to explore or what what we can be believing in that thought of I'm not okay. So really a whole area to explore and look into. But one of the key um, tools that mindfulness brings is we get to see that that judging voice, that critical voice, is just another thought in the mind. And we practiced with thoughts the other day, and perhaps you've had the experience of turning your attention to a thought and just having it go, you know, as I said that day, thoughts have the power we choose to give them. If you have the thought, I'm not worthy, I'm not okay, and you believe it, there's your reality. You live and respond out of that belief. You have that thought, and it has a beginning, a middle, and end, and you look at it, and it goes, poof. What's there to believe in? This is a radical shift that can happen. And of course, it's not a magic pill or button. You have to do that time and time again, be willing every time we have that kind of thought to see it for what it is and to explore the emotion. And you know, there's a lot of work to be done. But just that, just seeing them as a thought, radical shift in why we believe that. There's a book I really like that um, explores this whole sense of self-criticism by this man called Byron Brown. It's called Soul Without Shame. And this is what he said. The only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judging or critical voice. So this is a really important part of our practice, to let our wisdom, our mindfulness, discover this this capacity to wish well towards ourselves and to discover what true happiness is, to really explore that. And then the third intention is that of harmlessness, This is, uh, the Pali word for this is ahimsa, not causing harm to ourselves and others. And you can see how these all kind of are mirrors of each other in a way. It's just this is the outer expression of the goodwill, is that we live in a way that doesn't cause others to suffer, doesn't cause ourselves to suffer. And I don't know, some of you I know have been to Spirit Rock, but you can really see the power of this sense of ahimsa there, it's become like a petting zoo. I mean, not literally, but we have a lot of wild animals around. And sometimes you have to almost push them out of the way at at, at 
towards dusk every evening. We have a large meadow. There's some offices around it, a lot of coming and going. This flock of deer and, and turkeys gravitate to that meadow and they're just grazing and hanging out and sitting and you walk by within a few feet of them they'll look at you you know they might move away but they're not fussed they're not bothered and this is what's happened out of years of people practicing there and walking slowly and sending metta they really even the birds don't don't flitter away quite as much as birds everywhere else. I mean, here they, they're very friendly because they feed them. We don't feed them so at Spirit Rock. They're, just, they're used to people walking slowly. So fearlessness or harmlessness is this gift that we give others, knowing that we are not going to harm them. So it's said that we give others the gift of fearlessness through our behavior, through our sense of empathy or compassion. And it's a gift we give ourselves because as we become more authentic, as we live an ethical life, as we practice non-harming, the mind isn't so agitated. We're not so full of remorse about our actions. Talked about life review on retreat, um, all the things we've done that were harmful to ourselves or others, and can feel how agitating this is and how important it is to have some resolution about that, whatever that is, acceptance, forgiveness, compassion, This is to really start living out of that understanding that if we follow the precepts that we took at the beginning of the retreat of not harming living beings, of not taking what's not offered, of not using our sexuality in ways that harm ourselves or others, of practicing wise speech that's not not lying, not speaking harshly, um, speaking the truth, and not clouding the mind with drugs and intoxicants that lead to heedlessness, we start to live a life that's aligned with Dharma values, that is actually a life of ahimsa, of harmlessness. And the positive expression of that, so that's the actions, but it's out of compassion, or compassion is the expression, because what we're recognizing is that life is difficult. We're back to the first noble truth, that there's so much suffering in life we want to respond with compassion. Suffering actually is a doorway to compassion. The proximate cause of suffering, of compassion, is suffering. And so we start to see that, that all of these teachings weave together, that the wisdom develops the right intention, the right intention has these layers, and we come back to metta and compassion and the Brahma-viharas, and as we steep more in those, the mind becomes more free, and then the wisdom teachings are able to penetrate more. So it's just a natural unfolding in this path that we're on. And you can perhaps feel, without perhaps knowing some, any of these teachings, that the wisdom has developed in you in this retreat. And I've just seen it in the way you've talked in the interviews about understanding more about your process and the nature of things. And it tenderizes us doesn't it? People have said, I just, I'm crying and I don't know why I'm crying. Or someone said something and it just touched me so deeply. Or in my metta practice, wasn't expecting anything and then just overwhelmed by this tenderness, this vulnerability. This is what happens as we deepen in the mindfulness, as we keep making this connection that wisdom and compassion feed each other, support each other. The more we understand and practice compassion, the more the heart opens and the wisdom comes in and then the compassion deepens. 
Wisdom knows the truth of suffering, knows the impermanent, inconstant way of all conditioned things. And out of that, out of that tenderness, out of that openness, the natural response is this wise intention that gives up what no longer serves us, that expresses itself in goodwill or kindness or metta, and feels compassion for the suffering of beings. This is just the nature of this path and practice, and it where is where it leads. As Joseph Campbell says, I don't believe people are looking for the meaning of life as much as they are looking for the experience of being alive. I really think this is what our practice enables us to do, to be fully alive in this beautiful, rich realm of developing wisdom and compassion. These are the two wings, the two... two um, foundations of our practice and they feed and develop each other and so this is what this path offers this is the direction this path leads in and this is what I wish deeply for all of you so let's just take a moment to let the words settle into silence Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.